Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Well, you know, you're talking about something that I know I believe very firmly, and that is you're talking about natural law rights. Uh, And I know that our founders believed that these rights, as you already stated, those rights are uh, come to us by dint of our humanity. They belong to us. They're divinely given rights. And the government was thus there to secure uh, those rights for us, not to amend them, uh, rewrite them, take them away, or in some way change them and impose itself, the government, as the right giver, which is, of course, what we're seeing so much of now, so what you're really saying is that once the Constitution was written, we entered into the libertarian conservative era of our country, in which we had enormous prosperity and enormous growth. Yeah, and extraordinarily, the Constitution has only been amended 17 times. You know, after the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights, uh, the first 10 amendments, and then after that, for 225 years. Uh, we've only had uh, 17 more amendments, and that's really quite extraordinary because a lot of countries have had uh, 17 constitutions in uh, 225 years. We've had 17 amendments, and I think uh, the, the the reasons for that are are multiple, but uh, the, the ones that uh, I think are most relevant to our conversation today is that, um, first, the framers were geniuses, and they had a conception of liberty that was uh, that's every bit as relevant today as it was back in 1789. And second, uh, in, in exercising their genius, they had the foresight to make it uh, difficult to amend the Constitution. You know, two-thirds of both houses have to recommend amendments, and then they have to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. And that's given us a very stable uh, government and a tribute to the, the, uh, the foresight of the framers. The one problem that the framers didn't and perhaps couldn't have foreseen is that the Supreme Court, uh, to our regret, has, I think, on occasion decided that it will rewrite the Constitution, notwithstanding that the framers provided a process for amending it. The Supreme Court has stepped in and through the back door, uh, using a process that the framers did not sanction, has essentially changed the Constitution from what it was to something quite different. And that's this notion that the uh, the liberal faction on the court has, that the Constitution should be this living document uh, that can be altered at the will of the justices. So what what is this liberal view that we have a living Constitution? What do they mean by that? 
Well, they want the Constitution to be interpreted in light of new circumstances. Uh, that is a you know, sort of a malleable document that can be adapted to uh, current societal uh, demands. And Breyer, Stephen Breyer on the court, is the foremost proponent of this. And he describes the Constitution, and this is his quote, it's one desi- designed to provide a framework for government across the centuries, a framework flexible enough to meet modern needs. And then he goes on to say that the constitutional system requires, quote, structural flexibility sufficient to adapt uh, substantive laws and institutions to rapidly changing social, economic, and technological uh, conditions. Now, of course, that sounds quite reasonable. Um, And who could argue that the Constitution shouldn't be adaptable to modern needs? But the textualist response is that the framers foresaw that and provided an amendment process for structural flexibility. So if the Constitution needs to be updated, it should be accomplished by amendment, not by pretending uh, that the written document doesn't exist or that it doesn't mean what it uh, says it means. And In fact, what's the purpose of having a written document if we act as though it's just a a piece of paper? Um, And as I mentioned, uh, the resort to the text Uh, doesn't mean that you freeze the Constitution at a moment in time. You can always expand the words uh, to incorporate modern conditions, as we've done with respect to many of the uh, uh, provisions in the Bill of Rights. And just um, a couple of days ago, we had, I think, a very important decision uh, uh, where the uh, court uh, threw out a ban on stun guns. And the argument was made by the by the legislature that well, it was okay to ban stun stun guns, notwithstanding the Second Amendment, because stun guns didn't exist at the time of the framing, and so the framers could not have possibly imagined uh, that stun guns uh, would be protected by the Second Amendment. And the court, to its credit, eight to zero, made short shrift of that argument and made it quite clear that merely because the the Second Amendment didn't say stun guns doesn't mean that the term that it did say, namely arms, the right to bear arms, that that term couldn't be interpreted in light of modern conditions. So we can always expand the terms that are in the Constitution to incorporate uh, what uh, applies in in today's environment. What we can't do is interpret those terms uh, to mean the opposite of what they meant at the time. You know, you mentioned the decision uh, about stun guns uh, being an 8-0 to zero, uh, decision. That's kind of interesting, isn't it, because of the, the fears that a liberal court would somehow eviscerate the Second Amendment. Uh, how do you square that? Well, the, the Heller case was 5-4. The McDonald case, uh, two years later, which decided that the Second Amendment applies to the states and not to just the federal enclaves like D.C., uh, was also uh, 5-4. So I think there's a legitimate fear that uh, that if a court changed its complexion, for example, if Merrick Garland, the current nominee, uh, were to be confirmed, uh, and that uh, and he would replace Scalia, Scalia who wrote the Heller opinion, uh, Merrick Garland, who has indicated in the past that he favors uh, gun control and doesn't see any Second Amendment um, impediment uh, to more gun control, I think that would uh, put the Second Amendment, uh, its current interpretation, at risk. Uh, The saving uh, 
grace, but possibly, is that the justices do tend to follow a doctrine known as stare decisis, namely, uh, let the decision stand. So they are inclined, although this is not uh, this is not invariable, but they are usually inclined to follow precedent, and they're very reluctant to overturn uh, past cases. On the other hand, they've done so in the past, and undoubtedly they will do so in the future. So replacing Scalia with somebody like Merrick Garland, I think, runs a real risk that the Second Amendment uh, would no longer be interpreted to confer an individual right. I do believe that uh, Merrick Garland had said that he would have voted in the opposite way on on the Heller case. Uh, he was on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals at the time. The D.C. Circuit, a three-judge panel, uh, ruled in favor of Mr. Heller. Uh, there was a petition to uh, have the full circuit. You know, these panels are three judges. Uh, the losing party always has the option of asking the court to have all of the judges, in the case of the D.C. Circuit, it was then 11 judges, uh, sit and rehear the case. Uh, Merrick Garland made it quite clear that he would have uh, liked to have reheard the case, and I assume that he would have liked to because he would have voted the other way. You know, we talked about um, the... We talked about the um, the ways you can amend the Constitution and the living Constitution. Uh, to me, and I certainly would like your opinion on this, is not the Constitution an, an illegal contract between the original 13 states? And is not the entire federal government the creation of that contract, not a party to it? Well, I think... Um the Constitution's primary purpose is to protect the rights of individuals and to limit the power of the federal government. So I wouldn't look at it as a contract with the 13 states. That is to say, its primary purpose is not to preserve the rights of states, but rather to preserve the rights of individuals. And the a recent decision in a very interesting case uh, illustrates that point. The case was called United States versus Bond. It was a very interesting case uh, with a strange set of facts. Uh, Mrs. Bond's best friend had an affair with Mrs. Bond's husband. Um, Mrs. Bond uh, was not appreciative. Uh, she responded by um, lathering toxic chemicals on her friend's mailbox and the handles, the door handles of uh, her friend's car. The friend uh, was suffered some moderate burns. Now, of course, this kind of behavior is, is uh, criminal and is, is um, against the law in virtually every state. So Mrs. Bond gets indicted. But she doesn't get indicted by the state. She gets indicted by the federal government. And remarkably, the basis of her indictment is that she has violated the Chemical Weapons Treaty. In other words, she's treated as if she was engaged in chemical warfare. And what she, in fact, did was just an ordinary tort, an ordinary um, act, a violating act that would quite simply have been handled under state law. But instead, the Obama administration, seeking to expand the power of the federal government into traditionally state matters, 
decided it was going to invoke the Chemical Weapons Treaty. The Supreme Court uh, was called upon to to, uh, decide this case. Mrs. Bond initially said, the federal government can't do this. It's a violation of the Tenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment says the federal government only has certain powers, and one of those powers is not to pretend as though the Chemical Weapons Treaty negotiated with foreign countries applies to me. The court initially told Mrs. Bond, the lower court, that she couldn't bring the lawsuit. Why? Because the Tenth Amendment is all about the division of power between the federal and state government, and Mrs. Bond is not a state. She's an individual. And since the Tenth Amendment, said the lower court, is about states' rights, Mrs. Bond doesn't have standing. This went to the Supremes, and the Supremes quite correctly said, nine to zero, quite correctly said, the Tenth Amendment is not about simply states' rights. It's about individual liberty. And its purpose is to protect individuals against too much power being possessed by either the federal or state government. And it does so by dividing authority between the federal and state government, the grand objective of which is to protect individual rights. So indeed, Mrs. Bond did have standing to bring the lawsuit. That was a very powerful uh, decision, particularly since it was 9-zip, that reflected the purpose of the Tenth Amendment and, by inference, the purpose of the Constitution, or at least a primary purpose of the Constitution. Namely, not just to protect states against overpowering federal government, but rather to protect individuals against overpowering either state or federal government, with the two of them being checks against each other. So I, I would characterize the Constitution as being principally a, a, doc, a document that limits the power of government at all levels in order to protect the rights of individuals. You know, I really, I'd like to discuss this just a little further, though, because, you know, you've mentioned, and I know the Bond case, and we've talked about it before, uh, and that's, as you said, it's a case that really defines that the citizen has a right under the Tenth Amendment as well as the state. But... In the from a functional point of view, was not the Constitution ratified by thirteen states? They they came together, they wrote a contract, basically among themselves, which they then used to create a separate entity called the federal government, which they defined in every way they possibly could in the Constitution. So, in terms of of contract law, why why would that not be a contract among thirteen entities and their citizens that formed a, a separate entity? Well, it would be. I don't have any objection to uh, treating it as that way. You know, in a sense, the states were the agents for their citizens, and uh, their citizens elected state representatives. Uh, the state representatives were the people that then went to the constitutional convention and did uh, redraft, or actually rewrite entirely, the Articles of Confederation and and produce this new document, the U.S. Constitution. So those persons who were present at the Constitutional Convention act as the agents of the citizens of the individual states and came up with this new document, which then had to be ratified uh, by the state uh, 
legislatures and the state legislatures in turn were the agents uh, for the residents of the individual states. So I, I don't have a problem with uh, characterizing the Constitution as a contract between the states and the federal government, but the states were acting as agents for the individual citizens whose rights were being protected under well, that document. Well, that's, I mean, that's true, because what we're really talking about is individual sovereignty, sovereignty, right? right? right. So the, the individual sovereign citizen gives a tiny portion of his individual sovereignty to the state to act on his behalf, which is pretty much what happened at that point. And these individual 13 states had some pretty contentious arguments uh, when this, during this time about whether to agree to go on because they wanted to be free. They were, they'd just thrown off them uh, a monarch, you know, a, a tyrant, King George, and that, that's about the last thing they wanted to be subject to ever again. So under this, if this is truly a contract, okay, would you say that, that, that the states then have certain powers when the government, when the federal government oversteps its constitutional limits? What, what would those powers be of states and or citizens in the states? How, how should that be handled? Well, if the federal government oversteps, um, there are a number of remedies available. Uh, the first, the most obvious, is the ballot box remedy. So individual citizens do have the right to vote. Uh, they have the right to vote for their elected representatives. Uh, the states have given them the right to vote for president. And <clears throat> they can exercise uh, that right and throw out the folks who have um, behaved in an impermissible manner. So that's one remedy. The other remedy is, is through the courts. Um, and the courts are charged with the responsibility of seeing that both federal and state governments abide by uh, the dictates of, uh, of the Constitution. Um, the states, however, don't have any direct power over the uh, federal government. They do have a, uh, an inferential power, namely the feds can't force the states to, um, can't commandeer state legal resources in order to enforce federal law. We saw that, for example, in the case of the uh, medical marijuana. A number of states passed laws uh, that uh, legalized medical marijuana. In fact, a couple of states even legalized recreational uh, marijuana. Um, that's contrary to the Federal Controlled Substances Act. So marijuana remains illegal under federal law, but is legal under various state laws, some of which for medicinal purposes, some of which for recreational purposes. Now, the feds can step in and they can stop you from using marijuana, even in the states where it's legal. But what the feds can't do is they can't force the states to stop you from using marijuana. The feds cannot commandeer the state resources in order to enforce federal law. That's Prince. Is that right? Prince versus that's, U.S.? That's correct. That's correct. And that was a gun case involving the Brady background check rule. So the feds could not force the states. Uh, to um, to um, carry out background checks. The feds could send their own people in to carry them out, and the states couldn't stop that. The states couldn't frustrate federal law, but they did not have to be complicit in enforcing federal law unless they wished to be. So in that sense, there's a 
derivative uh, state power. That is to say, they don't have to uh, help the federal government in carrying out uh, federal law. But they couldn't force the federal government not to carry out federal law. They cannot, notwithstanding some vigorous debates by libertarians, uh, they cannot, in my view, nullify uh, federal law. Some libertarians feel otherwise. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man, I get joy in everything. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Hoochie-coochie.